Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How are you doing, Dave? I'm good. Still in Texas, not in California. Uh, unfortunately, California's, especially uh, outside of LA, is covered with a layer of, of ash. So, um, hoping that uh, those fires are able to be put out and and cooler temperatures prevail, uh, both uh, politically and meteorologically. This week and next, these two shows are going to be a pair where we're going to look at some of the key battleground states going into this presidential election. And so, you know, if you've been following the national political scene for, let's say, 20 years, going back to the Bush-Gore 2000, you're familiar with the basic map. And 2016 shook that up a little bit. There were some new states that became important and some states that had been more closely divided that went more decisively one way or another. And yet the map wasn't entirely different from what we've seen before. So what we want to do today is zero in on some of the Sunbelt states that are most important. Next, we'll focus on Big Ten country, Rust Belt, whatever you want to call those states. We'll talk about Pennsylvania. We'll talk about Minnesota. We'll talk about Wisconsin. We're also going to use these two weeks to help prepare you for November 4th. So we're going to think about some readings that might provide a little bit of perspective. We can all, two months, last two months of a presidential campaign, it's easy to lose your head, lose your focus, and get so invested in the campaign that whatever happens the night of November 3rd feels like it's life and death. And so we want to assign some readings, encourage you to do some readings that might help you with the longer term perspective, regardless of the outcome, November 3rd or 4th or 5th or December 7th or whenever this election happens to be actually resolved. All right, so we're going to turn to the headlines, and that's going to lead us into a discussion of the battleground states. So there's different lists of battleground states. We've talked about on previous episodes, the Real Clear Politics list, which includes Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona. So states we're going to be talking about. Uh, We're going to add Minnesota to that list. We're going to drop Michigan off. Uh, Politico is also another good source for information on this. They've got a list of eight battleground states. So the six we've already mentioned, plus Minnesota, and also Georgia. They did a really nice, long read. If you want to do a deep dive into the particulars or the kind of backgrounds of those states, again, kind of county by county, what are the things that are happening demographically, economically, some of the latest headlines, a great article, we'll have that posted in the show notes. But we're actually going to use another site, a third site, 270 to win to help define our battleground states. And they've got a really neat tool. If you're a a stats person like me, you know, my other life as a math major, I was definitely a stats person. They've got this really cool tool that allows you to simulate the election. And they take the latest polls and some other factors And they play it out as if it's election night on fast forward. So as the polls close, you know, Indiana is always the first state to have the polls close. So Indiana lights up first and then the next state to have the polls close and on it goes. And so you can see it as it would happen on election night, except it happens in five seconds. On the fastest speed, the whole election simulation is done in five seconds rather than five hours or whatever it might be on November 3rd. So you can obviously do this multiple times. And what I did was I ran the simulation yesterday until I got 50 Trump wins. And to be fair, even at five seconds of simulation, it took a while. 
there were 276 attempts in order to get 50 Trump wins. So Biden won 223, and there were three ties, three times out of 276. It was 269, 269. And by the way, if you look at the maps for those ties, they seem frighteningly plausible. If, if Trump wins Florida, North Carolina, Georgia, Arizona, and Minnesota, all certainly within the realm of possibility, and Biden wins Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, again, certainly within the realm of possibility, and the rest of the states follow their kind of normal distribution, you get 269 for each. Dave, are you ready for the House to decide the election? You want a one word or two word answer? <laughs> the one word's no, and the two words, uh, I'll say heck no. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. No, I don't, I don't, want, I don't want that. All right, well, let's leave that scenario aside, though. So that's, that's three out of 276. It's only 1% or so of the time. A few interesting numbers from the simulations. So Trump's narrowest victory was as close as it gets, 270 to 268. Uh, there were several that were really, really close like that. A lot of his victories were close, but that was obviously razor-thin margin. His biggest win was 338 to 200. So basically, out of almost 300 simulations, the Biden floor was 200 electoral college votes. And the question was, could he get the remaining 70 to put him over the top? Biden's biggest victory was 449 to 89. Now, here's where it gets interesting from the standpoint of, of looking at battleground states. So Trump never won the election without winning both Ohio and Texas. And he won it only once without Florida, once without Georgia, twice without North Carolina, and nine times without Arizona. So to put it in a different way, if Trump loses Florida, there's almost no path to 270 for him. If he loses Georgia, he loses North Carolina, he loses Arizona, very, very difficult. And so we're going to focus on Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona, because those are the three states that are most closely contested, where it seems like it's a real question as to whether he will carry those states. Other, other states like Texas, he wins that state most of the time, whether he wins or loses the election. But Florida often goes Biden if Biden wins, and it almost always goes Trump if Trump. So it's a good bellwether state. That's why it's a battleground for our purposes. Florida, North Carolina, Arizona, all, all fit that profile. Now that brings us to next week's battleground states, uh, the, the Big Ten states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Those three are, are all more difficult states for Trump overall. So he doesn't win them that often, at least in these simulations. But when he does, he tends to win the overall election. Okay, so if you're looking for three states that would be the best predictors of a Trump defeat, if he loses Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, he's almost certainly going to lose the election. On the other hand, if you're looking for three that are indicative of a likely victory, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Minnesota. That's the ones we're looking at next time. All right. So with that introduction, then let's turn to our first battleground state, Florida. Feels like we've been here before, Dave. Yeah, Florida is always uh, front and center in every election. And uh, looking through uh, statistics on Florida, uh, the demographic shifts, uh, shifts in party registration, et cetera, the, the news is... Uh, is not good for Trump. It's not terrible, but it's it's not it's not good heading into November uh, for a couple of reasons. And and here I want to we we can't uh, tell our research assistant by name just in case she gets canceled. You know, two years down the road for having worked for two individuals like us. But um, she did a great job this week pulling together uh, some. He of or these. she. 
he or she, uh, yes, exactly, did a great job uh, this week pulling together some of this um, information for us. But one of the things that that you say when you take a look at Florida is that uh, the gap between registered Republicans and registered Democrats is is shrinking. And there are more Democrats more recently who are casting ballots uh, and hence uh, the the influence of uh, the party registrations uh, could tend in the direction of Joe Biden in this campaign. Now, in response to that, uh, Republicans uh, will argue that uh, uh, there is a strong, as we know, a Cuban-American community uh, in uh, Southern Florida, uh, and that they are running Cuban-American candidates, strong candidates, uh, and that will probably offset uh, those party registration uh, changes. But what I wanted to do when I, when I looked at 2020 is, is I wanted to compare it um, on, on one account uh, primarily, and that is how did President Trump uh, do in 2016 in the bellwether counties, and what does his um, what does his future look like in those counties in in 2020? And one thing that immediately comes to mind when you compare the counties, the most important counties in 2016 and 2020, is the following very very important fact, uh, perhaps I think not not stated enough, and that is, in 2016, Senator Marco Rubio was running for re-election. And you could probably remember back in the primary, there was this uh, very um, uh, cantankerous uh, relationship between Rubio and, and uh, Trump. Uh, but by the summer of 2016, uh, Senator Rubio had, had made peace uh, with the president, I think uh, probably thinking that he had better make peace if he were going to win that Senate election because uh, he would would need the president's support in order to win. However, that's not what happened in the 2016 election. When you take a look at the numbers in Florida in 2016, uh, President Trump does successfully uh, defeat Hillary Clinton, uh, 48.6% to 47.4%. Uh, and what that amounts to in terms of votes is President Trump had a little over 4.6 million votes and Hillary Clinton had 4.5 million votes. So he won by about 113,000 votes. But when you compare Trump's margin of victory of 113,000 to Marco Rubio's margin of victory, you see a great disparity there. Not in the direction you'd think. Marco Rubio won the Senate campaign against a solid Democratic competitor, Patrick Murphy, by 713,000 votes. So he won the Senate race by 600,000 more votes than President Trump won the presidential race. And in particular, he won counties that President Trump lost. Uh, Marco Rubio wins Hillsborough County, which is where Tampa Bay is located, by 0.5%, uh, 283,000 votes to 281,000 votes. So for a Republican candidate to win uh, an urban uh, county, uh, it's Tampa Bay, but it's still an urban county, is, is, is quite an achievement. Whereas if you turn uh, to that um, election result for President Trump in Hillsborough County, he ends up losing that county by 41,000 votes. So that's a significant shift uh, given the amount of votes that uh, President Trump ended up winning the state by. But even more significant, Matt, uh, is the Miami-Dade County, which you just expect. It's Miami, right? The Democratic presidential candidate is going to carry that county. And certainly enough, 
uh, Hillary Clinton had 620,000 votes and, and President Trump had 330,000 votes. So a 290,000 margin victory for Hillary Clinton. But when you turn to the Senate and how well Marco Rubio did in Miami, he only loses that county by 109,000 votes. So his performance in that county is 180,000 votes better than the president's. And okay, so you'll say, Matt, well, he's, you know, he, Marco Rubio is Cuban-American. There are many Cuban-Americans who, who live in that district. That makes sense. Of course, he's going to do better than, than President Trump. But by 180,000 votes. Now, what's the difference between 2016 and 2020 in Florida? Marco Rubio is not on the ballot. There is no Florida U.S. Senate race in 2020, and there was one in 2016. So I think when I look at Florida, the fact that Marco Rubio is not on the ballot does not bode well for President Trump. And you don't really see much said of that fact. So if I'm the Trump campaign, what am I trying to do here in the next eight weeks in Florida? I would travel everywhere I could uh, with Marco Rubio. I would, I would have Marco Rubio on my right hand and just be kind of working through each of the important um, uh, parts of the state. Uh, let him do the talking. Abuse, you let know? him do the talking, so, <laughs> which is uh, quite a remarkable turnaround given you know, where things were four years ago. I mean, it's amazing how close Florida is election after election and how despite being so close, and so you would think, well, it's kind of a coin toss, but it's actually not. Every election since 1964, except 92, when George H.W. Bush narrowly beat Bill Clinton, whoever's won Florida has won the presidential election. So you've got a one-point margin last time. 2012, Obama won by less than 1%. It was three points, Obama over McCain in 2008. Of course, we know hanging Chad in 2000. 2004, Bush had a relatively easy win, five points over Kerry. But it goes back and forth and, and not randomly. It, it, it happens to be this one state whose electoral college votes are obviously an important part of any winning coalition. 29 electoral college votes makes, makes a big difference, especially on the Republican side. But it's amazing how central winning Florida is to winning the presidency. And what you're saying there, I think, Dave, just demonstrates how much of an uphill battle it will be for Donald Trump this time around. Well, there's one more pathway, Matt, and, and that is uh, we know that um, someone moved to Tampa Bay earlier in the year uh, and is now quarterbacking uh, their professional football team. Exactly. The GOAT. So what if the Buccaneers get off to a 5-0 and or 6-0 and start? Uh, things continue to look good in Florida. The Lightning win uh, the Stanley Cup. Uh, the Devil Rays win the World Series. Everyone's the in a great mood. They, exactly. they drop the devil. I drop the devil. Okay. Um, yeah. Cancel culture. Uh, but, but all of a <laughs> sudden, casualty. you know, that Saturday prior to Election Day, there's a Make America Great Again hat found in in Tom Brady's locker room, something that happened once uh, a long, long time ago in New England. You know, that, that could be uh, a means also uh, uh, to victory. But I, I will say this, kidding aside, 
things look a lot better for President Trump now uh, than they did in June or July. Uh, he has been able to make up ground, at least polling-wise, uh, to where things were uh, in March. Uh, as we go through these these three states, one of the interesting things is that uh, he faced a polling deficit in Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida, and he has been able to be on the rise in both North Carolina and Florida. So things are trending in his direction, uh, but it still means that I, I think he's in for quite an uphill battle, uh, uh, given, uh, as we've said, Oddly enough, and I wouldn't have thought that this was the case before I did the research, uh, that Marco Rubio is not on the ballot. All right, great. Well, let's uh, transition then to North Carolina, the second one you just mentioned, where the polls are moving in his direction, but also critical, it seems, part of any winning coalition for President Trump. So North Carolina also is an interesting case where the Senate candidate running at the time um, is is somewhat crucial uh, to uh, the Trump uh, uh, campaign results. Uh, in 2016, uh, Richard Burr uh, was running for the U.S. Senate, uh, probably running against a weaker uh, Democratic uh, opponent, but was able uh, significantly uh, to gain more votes uh, than than President Trump. Now, uh, similarities between the two campaigns, nonetheless, the uh, state of North Carolina has a hundred counties. The great majority of the counties in North Carolina, you know, have somewhere as you know, 150,000 uh, people or less within them. There are seven large counties that always vote uh, Democratic, uh, and that certainly was the case uh, in North Carolina uh, in in 2016. Uh, when you look at uh, those counties: Wake, Mecklenburg, Guilford, Forsyth, Durham. Buncombe and Cumberland, uh, the Clinton uh, campaign margin is in the hundreds of thousands uh, over President Trump. But then when you look at the 93 uh, smaller counties, uh, President Trump wins 77 of those 93 counties. Uh, and, um, oh, he won, won 76, excuse me, of those 93 counties. And Richard Burr had won one more. So Burr wins 77 of 93, Trump wins 76. So what's going on in 2020 on the ballot in North Carolina? Unlike Florida, there is a Senate election there, and the election is between incumbent Tom Tillis and his opponent, uh, Cal Cunningham. So what I did is I went in and, and tried to figure out what, what the dynamics of this race uh, are and and how uh, Tillis is is presenting himself and what case he's making to the voters of North Carolina and is that case in alignment with the case that President Trump made during uh, the Republican National Convention and does it have the same feel or vibe uh, that the the President Trump campaign has and and I think that you have a clip there of the uh, Tillis um, commercial campaign commercial which is titled. This means something, I think, humility. Yeah, so this is right on the Tillis website, the video that he wants you to watch, introducing himself to the voters. So here we go. Rental houses in Louisiana, trailer parks in Florida and Tennessee. We moved seven times before I was 16, living paycheck to paycheck. I grew up with strong parents and humble people and humble places, and I take a little humility to the U.S. Senate, where it's in short supply. I'm Tom Tillis. My job is fighting for your job. We will build this economy back, and I'll remember who needs it the most. I'm Tom Tillis. I approve this message. I think I noticed him quoting the Biden campaign slogan there. We will build this 
economy back. He didn't say better, but presumably he wants it better. Yeah, and I think that there's something in that you know, campaign slogan that you could certainly tie back to, to President Trump and, and this idea that there is a lost America. You think of all of those rural counties in North Carolina, if, if there are uh, 93 of them, kind of small towns, and a lot of these small towns are, are suffering uh, and uh, perhaps in a, in a COVID economy aren't doing well. And there's certainly a need for economic revival. And there certainly would be something in President Trump's RNC presentation that I care about, you know, the little guy living in that part of North Carolina that no one cares about. But what I found just important in all this is how Tillis presents himself. Uh, There's no edge to it. There's no point of a finger at the bad guy. There's no um, comparing uh, your opponent to radicals, which could very well be true in in many cases, but that's not the direction that the Tillis campaign is going, that the commercial is titled humility. Do you make the same of that, Matt, that that, that's meaningful, that that, that's that's the way that Tillis is presenting himself to the voters in North Carolina? It's definitely a zag, isn't it? I mean, I think there's no question there's an implicit critique, he says, of senators, Right. He says humility is in short supply in the Senate, but I think he might have said in Washington, D.C. And so to present himself in that way, yeah, I think he's trying to distance himself from the president. I think, look, these campaigns are going to tell us a lot about what the internal polls are saying, what the candidates are thinking. In a different context, he would be showing the president as much as he's showing himself in his own ads. And so the fact that he's not doing that, that thematically he's running away from the president, is suggestive that they're not confident that the president's going to carry the state. And so he's trying to figure out a way to win the state despite a Joe Biden victory. And I, and I do think that, that Tillis has a, a great opportunity to win. I think that was a very you know, powerful commercial. I think that that poll is very close between he and, and uh, his opponent, Cal Cunningham. But part of the difficulty that Tillis is going to run into, and I think would, it'll also be a difficulty for the president, and that is that Cal Cunningham is a very, very strong candidate. I think he's running a strong race. Um, in his campaign commercial, which is about three minutes long, which we can, couldn't go into it, but there's this key line where he says that he wants to go places that Democrats don't always go, which, you know, if you're in a, in a state, right, that has 100 counties and you can count on seven of those counties in order to win an election, you might be tempted not to go to the 93 others. But if Cunningham goes to those 93 others and he makes it easier for people to vote for a Democrat, you might see a little bit of a deficit in in President Trump's numbers in those counties, a deficit in the Republican numbers in those counties that could put Cunningham over the top in the Senate race. Um, and likewise, uh, could could make it very uh, difficult uh, for President Trump to to carry the state. Now he's polling well there; his polling numbers are up. I'm I'm just saying that I, I would I would call North Carolina very much a, a toss up uh, this year, which um, and I think it'll be a toss up right into the the end of the the campaign season. So that's not one you can count on. I I thought he was going to be able to to count on the state uh, without having to think twice, and I just don't see that being the case here. The more I look uh, at what's going on. North Carolina. All right. So Florida and North Carolina, certainly possibilities for a Trump victory there, but by no means certainties. Got some campaign work to do there. How about Arizona, Dave? I think that the, uh, the most challenging news for President Trump 
in comparing all of these three states is what's taking place in Arizona. And you'd never hear me say this because you know that I'm not a, a fan of moderate Republicans. It's just not my brand. Uh, I've, I'm not into the landed gentry kind of bushy type. I'm, I'm definitely more of a Reagan uh, libertarian conservative. So the, the fact that you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making this case uh, that things are difficult for President Trump, given this research. I'm, I'm, I'm not overly pleased with it, but let you me go back. You believe in science, though. You're a political I, scientist. I am. I've got to look at. I've got to look at what is there and and say, well, what you know, what what is explained by this. So go to Arizona, and you're going to see a very similar story in Arizona between 2016 and 2020, as you did in Florida. President Trump wins Arizona by 90,000 votes. So the margin is 1.25 million votes uh, for President Trump and 1.16 million votes for Hillary Clinton. But then if you turn to the Senate race of 2016, the margin of victory that John McCain has over his opponent, Ann Kirkpatrick, is 330,000 votes. So he wins by almost 13 percentage points where President Trump wins a nail-biter. What's going on there? Well, when you take a closer look at the counties, and the most important county in Arizona is Maricopa County. John McCain, in his Senate bid against Kirkpatrick, wins Maricopa County by 240,000 votes. But when you take a look at the presidential race in Maricopa County, you see Trump only winning by 45,000 votes. So a 200,000 margin of victory in John McCain's favor. Almost a little bit like what we saw with Miami-Dade, where a, a more moderate Republican, Marco Rubio, is able to pick up a couple hundred thousand more votes than the president in one of the most, if not the most important county in the state. So when you turn to 2020 and you're looking on election night at Maricopa County, you've got to hope as a Trump supporter that Trump is going to be able to carry Maricopa by at least 50,000 votes. But when you take a look at the Senate race in 2020, the Senate race in, in 2020 is between Martha McSally, who is uh, very much behind in the polls, uh, against a very strong Democratic uh, contender, Mark Kelly. And Mark Kelly's lead in Arizona has been upwards to 15 points, is down a little bit now uh, to 10 points, but he is polling much higher in Arizona uh, than than is McSally. And if you have a switch uh, in that Senate uh, so that you have a, a, a Democrat who wins in 2020 the U.S. Senate in Arizona, it's going to be very, very difficult for the president to carry that state. And that, if, out of all the three states uh, that, that we're talking about this week and, and going through the Sun Belt, the one I think uh, that is uh, the greatest predictor as to what President Trump is up against is what's taking place in the state of Arizona. Yeah, so I think you know you were asking the question, how's Tom Tillis playing the campaign and framing his overall vision for North Carolina? And we, we saw how different that was from the way that the Trump campaign has presented itself. We see the same thing when it comes to the McSally campaign. So she's got another video, um, a three minute, 21 second video. We're not going to play the whole thing, but here's 30 seconds starting about a minute in. She's 
had some other people lead in with some inspiring stories. This piece is, or the video is entitled Inspire. And now this is her kind of commenting on those people's stories and weaving her own story into all that. I'm inspired every day by the incredible stories of resilience. Oftentimes the very things that almost crush us are the things that can help strengthen us and propel us. Losing my dad when I was 12, surviving sexual assault. I was able to discover that I had strength that I didn't realize I had. I wasn't going to let myself or others be held back or held down again. So it goes on from there and continues some of these stories. But I think, again, it's fair to say this is not exactly a Trump campaign ad. No, no. This is a, a campaign ad that is um, making an attempt to, uh, to win over uh, a Scottsdale mom. Uh, I'm inspired. Uh, and it's, so it, it does not run at all uh, like a, a Trump campaign theme. And it's interesting, you know, much like humility, inspire, it's not necessarily something you think about when you think about uh, President Trump. Um, there, there are many strengths he has, but they're, they're not these kind of warm, sentimental type virtues that are being emphasized by these Senate candidates. I guess the only last thing I would say on, on Arizona is if you give up on it, then what you've basically allowed to happen is, is for a new kind of blue formation in the Southwest uh, to continue to gain predominance, right? You have a Nevada that's, that's gone blue, a New Mexico that's very blue, Arizona goes blue, all of a sudden you're kind of creeping into the Southwest. And I know that many Republicans are worried about uh, Texas uh, as, as a domino that might fall if, if uh, Democrats continue to make gains in the Southwest. So yeah, and for that kind of long-term strategy, you know, maybe it's better to keep your money there and, and keep it going and hope that things turn around quickly. Yeah, in these simulations, Texas went blue about 30% of the time. So I don't know if that's how it's going to land and if it's really that close, but that's, that's a significant number of elections in this simulation, at least, where Biden takes Texas. And obviously, there is zero path to victory for Trump without the 38 electoral college votes of Texas. Texas will not go blue. I'm going to kind of, my Joe Namath, you know, the Texas will not go blue. If, if what I see around me, which is a place in between Austin and San Antonio, it's not urban, but, but certainly there are professionals here. I, I, I don't think Trump has much to worry about in Texas. But if, you, if you're right, if, if he does, then this thing is over right now. We'll have more to say about the battleground states next week. Again, we'll take a look at Minnesota and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, three states that are a key indicator, if he's winning those states, that he is likely to win the election, speaking of Donald Trump. But now we come to our required reading. And so rather than using that as a way to kind of give context on various counties in Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona, which might be a challenge, what we're going to do is, as I said earlier, take a look at November 4th, the day after the election, and prepare ourselves for that. Now, for me, that's easy because our four-year-old daughter will be turning five. And so November 4th will be about her birthday. But for the rest of you who may have election hangover, Here's some things that you can be reading and thinking about and have at, at your bedside ready in order to press on and, and move beyond the immediacy of another presidential campaign. So we're going to have one reading for the mind and one for the soul. All right, so the reading for the mind is an essay by Harry Jaffa, who is the teacher of our teacher, Dr. Angelo Cotavilla, the main advisor for both of our dissertations, was a student of Harry Jaffa, a 
recently deceased, a great scholar of Lincoln, the American founding and all the rest. He wrote an essay 30 years ago entitled The American Founding as the Best Regime. And you can actually find that essay on the Claremont Review of Books website. We'll have a link to that in the notes. So you want to read that. It's about 20 pages in a normal publication form that I want to read. Just give you a flavor of the essay. It's a very deep interpretation of the American regime in the really the entire scope of the West. Here's what he says. The unprecedented character of the American founding is that it provided for the coexistence of the claims of reason and of revelation in all their forms without requiring or permitting any political decisions concerning them. He refused to make unassisted human reason the arbiter of the claims of revelation. And he's really speaking about how the First Amendment and the broader settlement concerning the relationship between the role of the church and the role of the government works out under the American Constitution. So it refused to make unassisted human reason the arbiter of the claims of revelation, and it refused to make revelation the judge of the claims of reason. It is the first regime in Western civilization to do this, and for that reason it is, in its principles or speech, leaving aside the question of its practice or deeds, the best regime. Right? So the theory, the principles of the American founding, he says, are the best regime in this sense. He's not talking about the practice or the ability of America to live up to those principles on every day at every time. But the virtue of the American founding rests not only upon its diffusing of the tension between reason and revelation, but upon their fundamental agreement on a moral code which can guide human life both privately and publicly. This moral code is the work of both nature's God, which he says is reason, and the creator, revelation. And of course, both of those are from the Declaration of Independence. And so the Declaration of Independence, according to what Jeff is saying, is, is a coming together of reason and revelation, not on every point of theology, but on the fundamental moral principles that undergird self-government. Religious freedom properly understood is a principle which emancipates political life, not only from sectarian religious conflict, but from the far profounder conflict between reason and revelation. Indeed, it makes reason and revelation for the first time open friends and allies on the political level, on the political level. For they are, to repeat, agreed upon the nature and role of morality in the good society. But now he contrasts this. This is the American founding with where we are today. But radical modernity is the enemy equally of autonomous human reason and of biblical revelation. The core of radical modernity is radical skepticism a dogmatic skepticism that denies that we do have or can have any genuine knowledge of the external world. This dogmatic skepticism denies that either philosophy or revelation and the traditional understanding are possible. It denies that either Socrates or the prophets could ever have distinguished, as Thomas Hobbes put it, whether God had spoken to them in dreams or they had dreamed that God had spoken to them. Hobbes was the precursor of modern scientific positivism, which regards all knowledge as essentially hypothetical and experimental. There's no ultimate source of knowledge that we can appeal to and that we can reason toward or have revealed to us in scripturated form. Its core conviction is that we know only what we make. In constructing a world from hypotheses, we ourselves are the source of all creativity. There is neither need nor room for God. In constructing a world from hypotheses, we have an a priori perfect knowledge of that world. There is neither need nor room for philosophy. So it rejects both revelation 
and philosophy, the two sources of knowledge which historically had defined the West and which came together, according to Jaffa's argument, in the American founding. Since there is no a priori knowledge in nature or of nature, no self-evident truths, once again, to borrow the language of the Declaration, to guide the human will, the human will must itself be the a priori source of all knowledge. Unfettered will is the ground, then, of all morality. And so here, what Jaffa is doing, in essence, is arguing that the settlement of the American founding, which reconciled the claims of reason and revelation with respect to political things, has been upset by modernity, not just the, the coming together, but actually both of them have been individually rejected by the radical modern, modern project, which we now see not just in the academy, which was where it was primarily to be discovered in 1990, but in Supreme Court decisions, just two years after Jaffa wrote this essay, the Supreme Court ruled in the Casey versus Planned Parenthood decision that the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. The a priori knowledge of my existence and my experience is within and nothing from without. Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a, beautiful essay and I mean it's inspiring in, in, in ways that Martha McSally's commercials aren't. It's, uh, it gives us a kind of a, an idea as to why our regime came into being in the first place and, and what it means um, in the development of, of human history overall. I think the tragedy when you read through it is just how, uh, how further uh, removed we are from that founding and the danger uh, that you see, especially in the year 2020, of this unfettered will in American politics and an unfettered will that won't even claim there's something unique about being American. In fact, goes further than that and says that, that America is not the best regime. It's, it's the worst regime. And, um, you know, I, what I fear, Matt, is, and, and that's why perhaps I, I think there's more at stake in this election or the, the choices we make in the next uh, 12 to 20 years in other elections. I, 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 what I fear is that this um, dogmatic skepticism uh, by, by those uh, intellectual uh, descendants of, of Thomas Hobbes is turning into a dogmatic despotism. It's not simply enough to define one's own concept of existence of meaning of the universe, but your unfettered will applied to politics allows you to define another's concept of existence of meaning and of the universe. Uh, and to do so uh, by canceling that person who disagrees with you, uh, by shutting them down, uh, by, by not having an open debate uh, as to what our differences of opinion could be. So I, I, it's a required reading that definitely shows me what what the stakes of the battle are and kind of brings them back to kind of this 2,500 year macro level understanding of, of things or, or 500 if you're um, particularizing it to the American regime. What Jaffa is suggesting that I think is, is important for us to appreciate is that whatever happens on November 3rd, there's, some, there's something about the American founding that is worth inquiring into, that is worth rediscovering, that is worth trying to figure out the best means of preserving. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting over the last, say, four or five years on the right is that there's been 
I think uh, a fracturing of the coalition, go back to our discussion a few weeks ago of, of the future of conservatism, there's been a fracturing of this coalition that more or less had come to the point, at least by the 70s and 80s, of affirming the American founding as maybe not philosophically the best regime, but practically speaking, good and worthy of emulation, that, that it, was, it had the resources for us going forward. Mm-hmm. And I think what we've seen over the last five years is that there's been a lot of people on the right that have begun to question that, have begun to reject that notion, and to ask whether the American regime is so thoroughly corrupted by its own attachment to the modern project that maybe we have to go back to earlier models, pre-modern models, in order to ultimately rescue us from the situation that we're in. In other words, there's a lot of conservatives today who are still rallying around the founding, but there's a lot as well, especially among the intellectual class, I don't use that as a pejorative in this case, but on the intellectual class of the conservatives who are saying, no, the, the whole modern project is the problem, that it ends in shipwreck, and that the American experience of that shipwreck is only perhaps on a relatively short time delay from the experience of that in other parts of the West, and that the American founding if it was better than some of the other expressions of the modern project was still thoroughly tied to that in ways that require us to rediscover a political life that's distant from our experience, distant from those principles. So the second excerpt that I've chosen to read deals with that question. And this is where Jaffa's arguing, this is a really important turn in his scholarship over the last 30 or so years of his life, beginning in the late 70s into the 2000s, where he begins to argue that the American project is a coming together of the modern and the ancient, that it's not a thoroughly modern project, and that although obviously historically it arises in the modern period, that it has roots in ideas that precede that. And so to go back to the American founding is not to embrace uncritically modernity and the moral relativism and the individualism, et cetera, that seem to be these poison pills within the modern project, but that there's more to it. It's got deeper roots and actually has an ultimate purpose that transcends the relatively low purposes that political life, that human life in general have been assigned in modernity. So let me just read this and I'll get your reaction to whether you think he's making at least the beginnings of a persuasive case on this point, Dave. Here's what he says. It is sometimes said that the American founding as an expression of modern, notably the Lockean political philosophy, lowers the ends of human life in order to make them more easily attainable. In other words, that the American founding is the product of modernity. For Americans, comfortable self-preservation implemented by free market economics and the scientific enhancement of man's productive powers replaces eternal salvation or contemplation as the end of man. And so you think about the ancient world, right? The best life was the philosophical life, if you asked Socrates. And of course, it was eternal salvation in Christ, if you asked Augustine. Is there a replacement in the modern project? Well, the suggestion that most have made is that the modern project substitutes things like self-preservation, a decent economic life, 
technological progress. These are the things that we, we look for now. And these higher aims have been pushed aside in modernity. So that's, that's the accusation. So here's his response. Whatever may be true of the thought of John Locke, this is not the way in which the American founding understood itself. The American founding limited the ends of government. It did not limit the ends of man. The ends of the regime considered as ends of government were lowered, but the ends both of reason and revelation served by the regime in and through the limitations on government were understood to enhance, not to diminish the intrinsic possibility of human excellence. In other words, limiting the role of government wasn't a way of limiting our human scope of enterprise and saying, lower your sight, don't worry about the philosophical life, don't worry about contemplation, don't worry about salvation. Rather, it was a means of actually achieving the ultimate purposes of, of human life, often captured in the air of the American founding by discussions of, of happiness. As long as the idea of human excellence itself survived is understood by the great tradition of Western civilization, the civilization of the Bible and of classical philosophy, the dignity of the American founding remained that of man's highest end. It is the outright denial within the various citadels of learning, the universities, of the dignity of reason and of revelation that threatens the eclipse of the American founding and therewith of Western civilization itself. So what he's saying is that's this later rejection of reason and revelation that was not intrinsic in the American founding or in the political project that surrounded it, but rather a later development, perhaps a fuller expression of modernity, but the American founding was not guilty of the same sins. And that instead, the American founding was a conjecture about how we could actually attain the highest purposes of human life and allow individuals to flourish under a government limited in its scope and yet have human beings pursuing excellence as classically and Christianly understood. Yeah, so once again, I, I, I couldn't be in more agreement with uh, Jaffa's reading of, of the American founding and its connection to uh, those aspirations longer term in Western civilization. What I'm wondering, however, uh, and he says this, uh, he says, as long as the idea of human excellence itself survived, and that, that to me is the big question, will the idea of human excellence survive uh, as we move forward? And we had an American founding that Jaffa rightly notes limits the ends of government, not of human aspirations. But we now have a, a, a government uh, that doesn't, is not uh, limited. Its ends seem to be growing uh, by the year. Uh, its purview seems to be growing by the year. I just look at what role government has played in American society in the year 2020. You know, whatever your opinions are on COVID, uh, its, its moral authority over the American people uh, has been uh, more supreme this year than, than perhaps any other year. And what does that do with regard to our understanding of ourselves and what we're aspiring toward? Uh, are we simply aspiring toward survival? Right? Is the goal just to stay alive at, at any cost? Uh, or are we aspiring to, to other ends? 
So I think what Jaffa has done, if his argument, and you have to read the rest of the essay and obviously sift through the evidence and all the rest, if his argument is successful, he's said, no, the American founding is a project worth trying to save. But he hasn't answered the question in, in 30 more years of history again, since this essay was written, have perhaps raised the stakes on this, whether it can be saved. And so that's, that's the question that we have to sift our way through as we try to understand how do we move forward from, from the shipwreck or the impending shipwreck that the modern project has certainly brought us to is the American founding a way out of that. If its roots are deeper than the modern project, as Jaffa argues, then perhaps it is. But definitely it, gives us a perspective on things that uh, is very different than, than going through the numbers of this county or that county uh, in an election, because it, it kind of shows you really what the stakes are. And, and I think um, that that, in a way, uh, could be an inspiration to us, uh, knowing that there's so much at stake in a good way. Uh, and and, and, and there's, there are other avenues in addition to elective politics, including teaching and, and education uh, and mentoring. Uh, and um, and public discourse uh, that that might lead, uh, if there's enough of it, uh, to a revival, at least a revival on a certain scale. All right, the reading for the soul. So Ecclesiastes chapter two. Whenever you're worried about the fate of political things or labor in general under the sun, Ecclesiastes two is a good place to turn. And here. The preacher says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. I'm just going to add one more verse, the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We can rejoice in joy or rejoice in counting. Uh, better the former than the latter. That's right. That's right. And to recognize that those things that you do unto the Lord are things that have an impact that goes beyond the present trouble and toil and trials. So, look, in politics, however wise your administration, the next one may, may be an administration of fools. And if the next one isn't, then it's the one after that. Recognize the limits of what can be done. We need people committed to the common good that they might love their neighbor in those collective ways. And yet there's a limit to what can be done. 
and the ultimate good that can be accomplished by political purposes. All right, we come to our last two segments. As always, we open the grade book and then we make a few guesses, usually not especially good ones, about the week to come. So in our family, we are in the middle of a run of birthdays for our kids. We've got one in August, one in September, and then one at the beginning of November and one at the end of November. And the way it works out with the kids is that the ones in November always feel like they have this super extra long wait. You know, you tell them, look, everyone's birthday, it's once a year. They kind of get that. But once you get in this cycle, it seems like, no, my birthday is still two months away, three months away. So it doesn't really work, right? They, they, they don't appreciate that little window where the first one's birthday has passed and theirs is still coming up. Now, you've got a birthday coming up too, Dave, um, end of the month. Um, turning not, 35. Not, not quite a round number birthday, but we're getting close. So we're going to grade the best seasons for a kid's birthday. Okay, you got to think like you're, like you're eight or 10, right? And go back to those days when birthday parties mattered and you know, trying to think about the best scenario for your birthday. If you could choose the season for your birthday. Okay, so you've had experience, 35 years of experience with a fall birthday. So give me a grade for a fall birthday. A, yeah, without, without question. It's, uh, it's at the beginning of the, the school year, so you could always uh, do things uh, with friends. It was, uh, well, it was, most of the time it was in New Hampshire, and September is the most beautiful uh, month, uh, I think, the calendar year in New Hampshire. And it's far enough away uh, from... Thanksgiving, Christmas, uh, some of the later holidays, uh, you're far, uh, further removed from them. So I, I think that's a, I, I say early fall uh, can't be beaten. I agree. That's a pretty desirable time. A lot of good outdoor activities, a lot of things you can go to. You can go to a ball game. You know, there's some special things you can do like that. So I'll give that an A as well. All right. So we've got winter next. So my Eliza's birthday is December 15th, and my Jack's birthday is January 2nd. Technically, Eliza's fall, and and Jack is January 2nd. I think that's a rough one. I mean, I I think we try to do our best for the two of them, uh, but they're very close. Ten days uh, before Christmas, eight days after Christmas, uh, and they're close, too, so they're comparing um, their birthdays. So that that may not be the, the winter thing, but... My son is even Steven. Everything's got to be the you know same right. or more. So right. um, fall, you know, I, I think we have a good time, but I think that's closer to a, a lower C high D. Of, uh, fall winter, excuse me, lower C high D. Yeah, I'm a uh, winter birthday, of course. So I've got some experience with this. My birthday is is enough after Christmas that it doesn't feel like it's in the shadow of that just yet, and it works out pretty well in the sense that if you didn't get something for Christmas, like you know the ten year old perspective. It was on my list. I didn't get it. All right, put it back on the list and you might get it, you know, three weeks later. So it, from that standpoint, it worked pretty well. It was always frustrating though. There wasn't really anything you could do, you know, for me going to a baseball game is like the dream birthday and you're never doing that in January. And there's not really good movies that are coming out. You know, that's kind of like the dead season for movies after the Oscar hopefuls come out end of December, Thanksgiving time. So the only good thing is that sometimes you can land on a holiday. So my birthday some years is MLK Day. It's a little bit later in the winter. You might get a President's Day holiday. So, you know, to get your birthday off from school is pretty cool. Um, Obviously, that happens if it's a weekend, but to have an extra chance for that on Mondays from time to time 
is not bad. So I'm, I'm going to give it a B minus. How about the spring? It depends where you are. The spring and where we've lived most recently has been actually spring. Is there such a thing as spring anymore in, in New England, or is it just that last week of May, first week of June, something <laughs> like that? So um, I would say that if it's in a place where you can enjoy the outdoors, spring birthday's awesome. You're near the end of the school year. Uh, you're you're in the mood to celebrate anyway, graduations, proms, et cetera. It's, it's great, especially if you don't have your birthday land on one of those important days. So... Um, uh, geographically sensitive, but overall, I think a, a solid B for a spring birthday. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, the spring is a very different thing depending where you are. I like the fact that you start to get some blockbuster movies out. So if you want to do the movie birthday thing, that's good. Uh, you can go to the ballpark. It might be a little bit cold, but you know, there's other sporting things going on. Go outside, do some outside parties. So yeah, overall, your options are definitely improved, especially if we're talking like late April, May type of spring birthday. So I'm going to give that a B plus. All right. We've got summer to wrap it up. Summer to me, I, this is a hard one to, to, to judge because summer, if you have an extended family, could be a great time to have a birthday. You're, you're at the lake and everyone's there and you have cousins and all the rest and, and you have the day to yourself and it could be wonderful. It could be an A or your friends could be out of commission. It's hard to gather anyone together because people are at camp. So it could be an absolute uh, fail. So um, I, I'm going to give an A or an F to summer. It's, okay. it's, it's, it's the, the, the depending upon uh, how many people are, are around you. I was going to say C. So I guess I'm, I'm doing the same thing. Yeah. It seems like, you know, the challenges of getting people together, it's, it seems more and more every year, everyone's gone or they've got activities, they're off to camp, or they're doing vacation. I mean, COVID summer was a little bit different, but no one could get together anyway. So I think that's, that's a real challenge. And, you know, sometimes it's just too hot, depending on where you are. Some of the outdoor activities that you maybe you'd like to do, you sort of, you know, you do it because you have to. It seems like a summer birthday, you should do something outside, but you kind of sweat your way through it. And it's not quite as much fun as you imagined it, it was going to be. So I think C for for summer birthday. Not complaining about, about where I landed in January, but uh, I think you might have hit the jackpot there, Dave, in the fall. We wrap it up with the Tocqueville's crystal ball. Last week, we checked in on our general sports predictions from two months ago and also made our prediction for last night's first NFL football game of the season. I said Kansas City would beat Houston 24-17. You said it would be 30-27. to Final score was 34-20. to so from the standpoint of the point spread, we were both wrong. Kansas City covered the nine-point spread and then some. Uh, but you were a total of 11 points off in your score. I was 13, so we're going to give you the narrow victory there. We're going to introduce a new feature here for the Tocqueville's Crystal Ball. For the next, at least the rest of the fall, we're going to look at five different sports, five different contests for the upcoming weekend, the Friday Five. And we're going to try to make quick predictions for each of them and just demonstrate the amazing depth and breadth of our knowledge of sports, which we know from previous market research is just the thing our listeners crave from this show. Here we go. Number one, NFL. A lot of good games to choose from, but we've got to go with Tom Brady's debut for Tampa Bay against his fellow quadragenarian, Drew Brees, the New Orleans Saints. The spread was as low as three and a half points. It's now up to five. 
New Orleans favored. First time Brady has started a game at quarterback without being favored since 2014. Isn't that crazy? But, crazy. but, but, but here we go. So it's a new world. What do you think, Dave? I think that, that the Bucks are in pretty good shape. I mean, they've been basically practicing since Brady signed. So uh, I'm going to say that they're the, the more well-prepared team and, and um, they cover that without those five points, I'm pretty confident about them covering the spread. It, it may be a field goal game one way or the other, but uh, I'll, I'll go with the bucks. I'm going to go the other way. I think the saints are going to be, the, I don't, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent confident that they're going to have put the new offense together for the bucks where the defense is going to have enough to be able to stop Drew Brees. Alvin Kamara is about to get paid. He's going to want to show that he deserves the big contract. So I think we're going to see a pretty big win by the Saints. I'm going to say they're going to win by at least 10 points. Now, second, tonight, by the time you hear this, you will know the result. Big game seven in the NBA, Boston and Toronto. Celtics are favored by two and a half points. Dave, can the Celtics get over the line or will Toronto continue their improbable march to a repeat? I think the Celtics take this one. I think that uh, it'll uh, come down uh, to just their, uh, they've got, I think more players, more depth. The uh, Raptors are a little bit banged up and, and they've done a great job to get back into it. But I don't think that uh, game seven will be close. I think the Celtics take it by uh, at least eight or 10 points. It's been a funny series that way because it seems like when Boston buckles down, they can defeat Toronto by a, by a healthy margin, but they don't do that every game. And I don't know why that is. So obviously it's not just a matter of their willpower. They want to win every game, but they, they seem to have some nights where they just, can't be stopped and where their defense just locks down Toronto and then other nights where they're just whether it's the effort or the schemes or whatever so I think this is going to be a night where they get it right I agree with you I'm going to say it's going to be a 15 point win for the Celtics I think they're going to win this thing going away now NHL we've got the Las Vegas Golden Knights at the Dallas Stars in the Edmonton bubble Stars remember my sleeper pick the Stars still alive. They survived their game seven last week. They lead the series two games to one, but the Golden Knights are the favorite. So what do you say, Dave? We got a 2-2 going ahead or a big Dallas lead? 2-2. Yeah, I think this will go seven games. We'll be super close. Yeah, I, uh, Either one of these teams, as you know, will lose to the Lightning in the Stanley <laughs> Cup finals, but I think that uh, Golden Knights even it this weekend. Tampa Bay is going to be the sports capital of the world after the Rays, Lightning, and then who knows about the Bucks? We'll see by, by, by February what happens there. I think it's going to be 3-1. I'm, I'm confident those stars, I think they're going to keep their winning ways going. So three games to one, they will have a lead. They'll be on their way to the finals. All right, on to Major League Baseball. Of course, a lot of games to choose from throughout the weekend, but we're going to go with the Sunday night baseball game, which is Houston at L.A., the ongoing grudge match, lots of Dodgers not too happy about how Houston won seven games, 2017 World Series. We've got 23-year-old pitchers at least scheduled to start. Christian Javier for Houston, Julio Urias for L.A. What do you think, Dave? I have Javier on my uh, fantasy team, and he's, he's done great. So I, I think he'll, he'll help them uh, win this game. Uh, the Dodgers can have to lose you know eight to ten games they're so far ahead so <laughs> yeah. yeah i i i uh, i i'll take the uh, astros here they're my only team left uh, the one i predicted i don't think the nationals have much of a shot here so uh javier i'm gonna go with urias i think it's gonna be the dodgers i think they just 
on the big primetime game, they're going to want this thing badly. And so I, I, my guess is that they're going to come out swinging and Urias pitch a nice game for them and they'll win this by several runs. Number five, fifth sport, Premier League, going back to the well. We did so well with our Premier League predictions when they did the restart back in July. We've got to do it again. Tottenham Hotspur at home against the Everton Toffees, Liverpool's second team against North London's finest. Toffees coming off a 12th place finish in the Premier League. Tottenham was sixth for a disappointing finish. First time in five years, they're not in Champions League position. Brought in a few players on both sides during the transfer window, trying to shake things up a little bit. But what do you say, Dave? Tottenham or Everton? I think Tottenham. I think they, as you mentioned, disappointing season. And, and I think they'll, they'll have a much better season this year. In fact, I, I think they'll be top three, top four in the Premier League. So they start the season off correctly. All right. Well, I hope you're right. It's, it's time for Tottenham to, to get off to a good start. They've got a crazy series of fixtures coming up they're playing in the Europa League and the Carabao Cup they've got nine matches in 22 days if they keep winning so they might as well get one win under the belt and then see if they can keep it going so I say Tottenham as well I think they're going to actually do a nice like three nil it's going to be a, a big win for Tottenham people will be feeling good at least for a few days in North London all right that is it thank you for listening we've covered a lot of ground from the minutia of individual states to the long scope of western civilization scripture and tottenham all in one show so thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed it we'll talk to you next week